Good morning. For our Everyday is Earth Day segment this morning, we have a Minnesota State University Mankato professor, Dr. Philip Larson, who is the co-director of the university's Earth Systems Laboratory, and he's director of the Earth Science Program, and is part of an interdisciplinary group of experts who will be studying the formation and evolution of the Lake Superior Basin through a project that was funded by a $2.8 million Collaborative National Science Foundation Frontier Research in Earth Sciences grant. Well, first of all, congratulations, Dr. Thank Larson. You. That's a, a lot of money. <laughs> and yeah, and it's a, it's a really cool project. Talk a little bit about what is this project, the Frontier Research in Earth Sciences Grant, what does that do? So, uh, yeah, it is a lot of money. It's intimidating, honestly. But, <laughs> but it's also something, I, I grew up on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. Growing up in this part of the world, Lake Superior is always one of those gems that, you know, we as Minnesotans and stuff um, visit quite frequently. And it's just a beautiful landscape. And we started thinking about it, some of my colleagues and I, and realized that there's a lot of useful questions in sort of the geosciences that we can address by using the Lake Superior Basin as, as a natural laboratory. Um, and on top of that, we can actually just, in the same vein, use um, those sort of theory building ideas to actually understand the geologic history of Lake Superior as well. So it's sort of a double-edged sword, if you will, but it also like for us, some of us, including my colleagues at the U of M that are in this, uh, it's real close to home, obviously, but it's it's important to us for that reason, too. So through the National uh, Science Foundation, this Frontier Research in Earth Sciences, this whole thing is about building these large collaborative ideas that address many different theoretical questions in the science with one big fail swoop like this. So that's sort of the idea of this particular program. And I think we're pretty lucky to have gotten it. Yeah. Well, I found it really interesting. One of the descriptors, it says about you, you are one of the principal investigators for this project. It says that you and the group will investigate the relationship between the recent deglacial history and the formation of rivers and their valleys on the north shore of Lake Superior. When we talk deglacial, does that have anything to do with climate warming, climate well, change at all? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different avenues of it, but you're nailing down what my particular focus within this as one of the, the principal investigators is. And and in reality, it's funded or and sort of funded and driven a lot of my work in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin for the last 10 years as a faculty member here. The idea that we once had large lobes of ice coming from what was called the Laurentide Ice Sheet that originated over Hudson Bay and, and moved down into this part of the world, and now those glaciers are long gone. They radically transformed this landscape, and now today they're still in a sense transforming it because things like rivers and the lakes that we observe are all things that are actively changing the landscape, but they wouldn't be here if it weren't for those glaciers to begin with. So trying to understand how these landscapes are adjusting after the glaciers left is a really important fundamental question in the field of geomorphology. And for most of the people involved in this project, some are focused on glaciers, some are focused on rivers, some are focused on sort of the longer connected history of all of this. Um, it's a really cool team that I think we can actually address that entire story of the Lake Superior Basin through this. So how much of this is, because this is Every Day is Earth Day, 
in the topics are related to environment. How much of this is that your research will be attributed to climate mm. change and that sort of thing? I mean, are you think you're going to find a lot, or is it the matter of you don't know and this is what you're hoping to find? Well, I think modern climate change is a bit out of the, the scope of this, but one of the important things that we do in the geosciences and earth sciences is even the stuff in the distant past, even as late as 15, 16,000 years ago, all the way up to maybe... 10 to 11,000 years ago when ice was still in the Lake Superior Basin, we are looking at how the ice is moving back and forth in response to natural climate change. Okay. And so in order to understand the magnitude of our impact with modern, contemporary, anthropogenic-driven climate change, uh, it is very important that we understand what the natural systems do. So we have a baseline. Right. Um, do we not have a baseline currently? Um, we do, but there are still questions, right? That uh, just like all things in science, we can continue kind of building towards a more comprehensive and better understanding. And there are details that add to the puzzle over time where we can get a much more clear view uh, of what the natural system does. And it's a pretty complex thing, right? So we look at the Lake Superior Basin and, and we see that ice moved through it and shoved its way all the way into Minnesota at times and into Wisconsin. And then it receded away and then it came back again halfway into the lake and then it receded away again. So understanding even those small nuanced scales of, of fluctuations helps us understand um, the, the natural climate system and how it's driving things like the health of glaciers. And one of the major concerns we're looking at today is a lot of the glaciers retreating across the globe. So we can look at the Lake Spear Basin as a sort of microcosm, an example um, to the, that we can thoroughly study to understand how glaciers work and respond to climate change. So. And you specifically are going to address some of the water outlets here in the state of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. According to the University of Minnesota's news release, it says that your group is going to be improving the understanding of two of the lake's past water outlets. And then it says you will build a chronology of water released to the St. Croix River Valley and Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then once you know that timing, you integrate that into other team members' work to figure out how these events shape Lake Superior itself. So talk a little bit about, because a lot of people are familiar with the St. Croix River Valley and, mm -hmm. and the, of course, Lake Michigan we all know about as well. Yeah, yeah. So we know that ice fluctuated back and forth after what we call the last glacial maximum. So basically when ice got to its farthest extent um, into sort of the, the United States, if you will, uh, in this part of the world. And then it melted away and then it fluctuated. It came back again for a brief period of time and then it melted away again. And meanwhile, all of that ice, um, it's easy to just think about the glaciers fluctuating back and forth, but there's also meltwater. And meltwater is what's happening when they're melting away. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's pooling in large lakes and it's got to go somewhere. Sometimes it spills out uh, down corridors like the St. Croix River Valley. Or even in our own backyard, the Minnesota River Valley was a corridor that a lot of glacial meltwater went down at one point. Um, so one of the places we will be looking in this project is the St. Croix River Valley uh, as an outlet of what we call Glacial Lake Duluth. Wow. It's a predecessor to the modern Lake Superior. And there are two outlets that we think are there. Um, there's some very sparse information about those outlets. Um, we would like to really refine that and nail that down to know when meltwater was flowing through that and the magnitude of that meltwater pulse. In reality, what we'd like to know is how the St. Croix River Valley got to be the way it is today, because there's a lot of recreation, tourism, it's very beautiful. And in reality, when you look at the lake, it's a big trench that cuts the border of Wisconsin and Minnesota. We'd like to know how that came to be and why. 
ultimately, too, we would be looking at um, outlets across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan that would have connected Glacial Lake Duluth likely to uh, Lake Michigan at one point. So flows that breached across the Upper Peninsula. And you can actually look at satellite imagery right now and see these sort of swirly swaths of, of land that were scoured out by these flows. So we'd like to understand when that happened and, and the nature of those flows as well. Ultimately, what these are tied to is the fluctuations of the lake over time. So it's easy to go to Lake Superior and go, oh, wow, you know, it's huge, probably not changing, right? Well, through this longer time scale of, of deglacial history, uh, lake levels actually fluctuated quite a bit, tens of meters. And so what this leads to is also that all of the rivers draining into Lake Superior were responding to these lake levels, cutting up or filling up and cutting down when they would go down. And so we're also going to be looking at the rivers along the north shore of Lake Superior, the, the classic state parks that are all up there, all those really cool waterfalls. Those waterfalls are emblematic of the response to the rivers in sizing to the lake levels dropping over time. So we're trying to build models about how rivers cut through bedrock like that using Lake Superior as a, as a taste, test study for that. Will any of that be applicable to what's happened in the Minnesota River Valley? I mean, we're not obviously as close as the St. Croix River Valley. We're farther down the way, but mm -hmm. will there be similar applications that make sense for how this happened here, or is it different? Yeah, I think it's part of a regional puzzle that I've been working on for 10 years. And so I've been working in the Minnesota Valley for a long time, too. There are instances where we have these nick points or waterfalls uh, that have responded to the valley of the Minnesota being carved from meltwater pulses years, um, probably 13 and a half thousand years ago or so. For example, Miniopa Falls is an example of this. So if we can build models to understand how that process unfolds with those North Shore rivers, we can apply it to, to places like Miniopa Falls to understand how that waterfall got to be where it is today. But also the Minnesota River Valley is connected to this because the St. Croix, the Minnesota, and the Mississippi all come together in a very close geographic area. And to understand the entire nature of the Mississippi Valley itself, lots of tourism there, lots of communities along there, lots of economics there, even Native American cultural sites that are tied to the evolution of that landscape. We have to understand all of those inputs. We have to understand the St. Croix. We have to understand the Minnesota and what's being routed through the Mississippi to create that landscape as well. So we're trying to connect, if, if you will, pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, right? And we piece by piece kind of fitting them together to explain the entire regional history that is the upper Mississippi basin. So some of my colleagues that are on this NSF are the same colleagues working with me on that too. Oh, okay. So we're trying to step through these pieces kind of sequentially through time and you know, this just happens to be a really awesome one because it's Lake Superior, too, right? Oh, yeah, and we all know Lake Superior. We want to all give, visit it, and it's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful lake. Now, 2.8 million, it's from the National Science Foundation, so mm -hmm. obviously they expect to see some results. What do you hope results from this? I mean, what what are you hoping? Is it like uh, just more information? Is it a book? Is it a yeah maps or, or what? That's a great question. There. Very likely, given the group that's involved, um, a lot of very fun people from U, U of M, University of Wisconsin-Madison, Harvard, um, University of Wisconsin-Superior, a lot of really, really good scholars, scientists that are involved in this. There will very likely be a whole series of academic peer-reviewed papers that come out. There will likely be a lot of conference presentations um, at professional conferences. For me, um, 
the maybe the most important thing is there's quite a few funded students in this too that are going to really build their careers starting here with this project and the large amount of money involved in this really a lot of it goes to funding those those students to move them forward in their career in the earth sciences so i'm most excited about that um and collectively the sort of pis on the project or principal investigators are all really geared up to be uh, strong mentors. That's what we want to do to try to help them and give them the credit for doing a lot of it, right? But it, it's, I think, going to serve a really great purpose. We've got currently two master's students in the Department of Geography here that are already involved in this project. Um, there will likely be another one. Um, there'll be PhD students at the University of Minnesota, PhD student probably at Harvard. So a master's student at U of M Duluth, I believe, as well. So there, And undergraduates from all of these institutions. So this is a very, in our mind, a very student focused or student-driven uh, project. Do you see this contributing to the body of work that is geology or the mm -hmm. origin of lakes and things like that? Do you think it'll be a big piece to contribute to what future folks like yourself study? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a f multiple aspects in this, hence the the FRES program, the Frontier Research Interstitial Program. And there are multiple sort of big picture theory questions that we're attempting to address. Uh, my particular focus is on on sort of these river responses mm -hmm. and things through time. How do we form these valleys? How does meltwater get routed through the landscape as we have deglaciation occurring? But also the response of rivers to to what we call base level. So as the lake levels are fluctuating, how are the rivers responding in their landscape? Those are big picture theory that um, really move forward a lot in things like sedimentology, things like a field called fluvial geomorphology, understanding rivers and those. Other researchers involved in this project, and we're all sort of tied into everybody's things, are looking at things like how glaciers flow over bodies of water. So understanding the dynamics of how the glacier, the superior lobe, moved across Lake Superior. Um, that helps us understand how ice that is terminating in bodies of water around the world as they melt away, how they're behaving with that. There's also ideas looking at in this project how uh, something called isostatic rebound is occurring, where if you imagine you have a cup of water with some ice cubes in it and you kind of press down on one of the ice cubes, the other two ice cubes pop up, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of think of it similarly, although it's not completely correct, with the crust of our planet. If we put a lot of weight on it, it sinks down. But if we remove that weight, the crust bounces back up. And what we know is that over sort of uh, Hudson Bay and, and even around the Lake Superior Basin and over places like Scandinavia and Siberia where there were big glacial features 20,000 years ago, that ice is now gone and the crust is lifting back up. But what we know about Lake Superior is that the geology is very different. It is a 1.1 billion year old rift valley that failed, kind of like East Africa where the crust was ripping itself apart. It failed there, but that ge geologic structure is still underneath there. The rest of the continent around it is very different geology. So what we want to do is look at how Lake Superior is bouncing back up compared to these other parts of the continent to understand why different areas would be lifting up differently. And so that has to do a lot more with sort of real deep geology, right? right. But we're looking at all of these different aspects in the same project. And Lake Superior as a basin really becomes this microcosm, this natural laboratory to intensely focus on some of these. So, so Dr. Larson, how does this fundamentally benefit society, this mm -hmm. type of work? I mean, does it? how does it affect our everyday life? So somebody listening is like, well, yeah, that's geology, something I learned in school, <laughs> but how does it impact us that we might relate to? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of different aspects to it. And I, I think what I'll do is I'll just focus on sort of my end of it because mm -hmm. it would yeah, we'd be fine. talking forever, I think. But, right. but 
there are some interesting aspects that we, we've tied into this purposefully. We know in a lot of these river valleys in the upper Midwest that there are Native American cultural sites within them, some of which need to be identified and preserved. And those Native peoples were very likely responding to the dynamics and living here as these landscapes were forming, uh, but also living here post them forming and sort of still evolving to its present state. So we have uh, an archaeologist in the Department of Anthropology here also involved in the project, uh, Ron Shermer, who will be helping us look through the data sets to make sure that when we're going out and identifying these geologic features that we're also cognizant of any Native American cultural features that are in this landscape and trying to understand them and preserve them as well. So there's some of that sort of tangentially tied in thing here too, but also understanding rivers themselves. We know that very well down here in, in the Mankato area that the rivers erode and they can cause hazards. Sure. <laughs> um, they can create big cliffs and they can have landslides. They can have all sorts of interesting issues that can be devastating for people. And understanding the basic theory, the science of how rivers work and how they form their valleys and how they erode through landscapes will help us better understand those kind of things as well. Understand how those hazards develop, why certain areas are prone to these things versus others that aren't. And so I think there's some bigger theory that's going to add into how we understand how these landscapes evolve through time that are really important. This sounds like it's going to be a very long-term project because it's so many different aspects of geography, geology involved with this. Yeah. How long are we talking? Years that we're going to see uh, something happen, or what are you? What do you <laughs> yeah. have any projections? Yeah, if, if I'm totally honest, I, I mean the project is a five-year project oh, through okay. the NSF, and I mean we get the first three years of funding, and then we have to prove it that we're doing things, mm -hmm. and which makes sense. Yeah. So then we'll get the next two years. But in reality, particularly one colleague at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Andrew Wickard in Earth and Environmental Sciences, he and I have been talking about Lake Superior probably for six years thinking about this and going up there and trying to really piece together all of the questions in our head about this place and why we think it's so important as a natural laboratory. And then it started to congeal other folks from all over. And then that's when it kind of hit. And now uh -huh. we've got the next five years to really utilize the resources we were given to answer those questions. So I think, you know, in the next five years, you'll see quite a lot come out of this, but there's probably stuff that will continue on for as long as my career's there, because there's some questions that just take a really long time to answer. But. Well, I hope you'll be sharing as, as you find things with us, because it's very, very interesting. You mentioned natural climate change. Mm -hmm. We've had that for years. So is that why you have people who are climate change deniers? They say, well, it's happening anyway. And then as in your position, do you say, well, yes, there is natural, but there's more? <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting question because I, I think there's a, a fundamental lack of understanding of the earth sciences in general in the general mm -hmm. population. And I don't really blame the general population for that. I think, you know, we just don't get a lot of it in sort of K through 12 world. And then when we come to college, uh, if we go to college, you might get one intro class and that's it. And so it's very easy to go out after that and just assume that, hey, I learned something about glaciers bouncing around and so therefore climate has bounced around and this is what some professor told me or some teacher told me. And that's fine because it's probably not wrong, but it's not the whole picture, right? And I think really like what I kind of pointed at earlier was that understanding those details of what the natural system is doing really helps us set that baseline for that argument, right? That we can compare what we understand about what the natural world would do without us at a very, very high resolution so that we can say, hey, look, the magnitude of what's happening right, right now and everything we understand about the natural climate 
are not syncing up. Something's out of whack here. And what do we do? Like, what do we do to address that? And it's, you know, we've known for quite some time that things like carbon dioxide and methane and, and, and so on are, are these greenhouse gases, right? And we've actually attributed natural climatic cycles to some of this. So, you know, it seems like it's not a far reach to look at what's happening now and see that direct correlation to go, yeah, this is something different. It doesn't quite fit in what we know about the natural world. Although it is a natural process we're adding to, it's sort of a positive feedback. So, you know, I think the people that argue about the natural cycles, they're not wrong. They understand enough to know that this is a naturally variable planet. And for the last two and a half million, well, 2.8 million years or so, it has bounced around like a yo-yo. The climate has bounced around dramatically for 2.8 million years, but it's happening over these long geologic timescales of, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of years. Today, the magnitude of change that is occurring in such a short time frame is a little more troubling because we can collect data about these ancient landscapes compared to what's happening now and, and see this and go, yeah, it's just not lining up with us. So, but I don't turn people away who want to talk about this. I get them in my classes and they, they ask about natural cycles. And I prefer to have those conversations because I think we can actually show them things. We can sit down and have a conversation about it to really change that, that opinion, if, if you will. So. Yeah. It's a broad question. I know that that will continue to be argued, but I, I like your explanation. You need to understand some of the underlying information, yeah. which you obviously have studied for many, many years. Yeah, and 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 I think the the take home is that we say that there's this big magnitude of change, and it's getting very warm today, and we see the evidence of that in a lot of different things, like the glaciers retreating across the planet in many locations. Some places they are growing. I'll give give those caveats there. But in most places, some places, it's quite scary how fast they're retreating. And so we look at that and then we look back to this really, truly natural system of deglaciation on our planet and go, OK, how do these compare? Right. And it, we can't truly understand the magnitude of change of something humans are doing unless we know what the natural system is already capable of. Right. So it gives us a baseline condition. I think that's really important. Will you be making trips to the Lake Superior area to study this? Is that part of this is hands-on type of thing? Yeah. Or do you, I guess I'm not sure how something like this all works. Yeah, I'm very much a field-oriented scientist. So there's there's kind of different types of people that do this, this work. Uh, some are modelers. They build really complex physics-based equations and put them into computer models and try to simulate things. Oftentimes those folks need real-world data from real places to help build those models. And I, I like to think of those models as sort of the big theory that we can develop, but you basically have dials like you have on your radio, and you twist the dials to calibrate towards what we actually see in real data. And that's my job, is to collect the real data with my students, go out there and try to understand what's really physically happening in a landscape over time. And that's what that whole geochronology thing is, is when are things occurring? How fast are they occurring in real landscapes, then they can take that information and put it into their models. So the part you read about how this data will integrate into these other folks' work, they're going to then take it and refine and build models that actually explain these processes fully. I'll be involved in some of that, but I much prefer to go visit these places in person and, and spend time outside. So, I don't blame yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> so has this research existed before, or is this really actually new research that you're doing, or is it built on some others that's similar? Um, 
Yes and no. Uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions that have been lingering about the Lake Superior Basin for a long time, but that there are people that have done aspects of things that have built us to where we are now so that we can go and approach this and ask those questions. When we look at the river systems and stuff, there's a lot of research that has been done in many places all over, and there's still a lot of questions lingering there too. So I like to always think about sciences standing on the shoulders that came before, right? That's how I think about the work I do and everybody else around me does, that it doesn't exist in isolation. These aren't my original ideas. This is the community of science idea, that there are gaps in what we understand and we build on what's been done and continue to grow our, our body of knowledge about these things. So I think what we're doing in this project is really using the Lake Superior Basin as a natural laboratory to build the next step. And somebody will probably come 10, 20 years after us and build on what we've done. Maybe tell us we're wrong. That's okay. That's great, actually. But it's it's part of the endeavor. And that's what I really enjoy about being a scientist. So We are talking with Professor Philip Larson, who is the co-directory of Minnesota State University Earth Systems Lab and the director of Earth Sciences Programs. He is among nine lead scientists from five universities who have been awarded a $2.8 million National Science Foundation grant for a Lake Superior Basin Research Project. We want to congratulate you again. That's a big Thank deal. You. And please keep us up to date and some of your findings. I, I absolutely will. Thank you very much. Thank you.